Jesus spoke from the cross, he intended for us to learn something. He made it clear when he prayed over Lazarus at Lazarus' tomb that when he prayed out loud, it wasn't so that God would hear him, it's so that we would hear him. And in those moments of dying, those hours of suffering, those utterances from the cross have profound significance that we need to pay attention to. He literally was dying to tell us something. When he spoke from the cross, Father, forgive them. He let us know that the purpose of the cross was the forgiveness of the lost, that the cross is about lost people, and that if we're going to honor the cross, we need to be looking for people that need to hear the gospel message. Then he said, secondly, to the thief that was hanging on one side of him today, you will be with me in paradise, that we have an eternal destiny secure because of the cross. It's not just about lost people, but it's about lost people coming to faith in Christ and spending their forever in heaven. And this morning we see Jesus in all of his humanity. We see this human pathos, the human pageant of emotional experience. It will let us see just how much Jesus can be our sympathetic high priest, touched in all points like as we are touched. Even from the cross, when he sees his mother and John the beloved, even in the midst of horrific suffering, he answers the responsibility that he would have, not as the son of God, but as the son of Mary. What should be done? What will happen? How does God view human relationships? How should we view human relationships? How should we respond to people around us? Because if Jesus could respond to the needs of relationship while he's hanging on the cross, you and I have no excuse. Hello? We have no excuse to deal with relationships. He's an empathetic high priest. <laughs> the first thing that we see in this moment while Jesus is hanging there, the Bible tells us that he saw his mother. His mother was at the cross. She's standing at the foot of the cross. So this morning I want you to picture this whole scene, not from the vantage point of heaven looking down at the supernatural provision for mankind. But I want you to see the human Jesus hanging on the cross and all that was happening around there. What would his mother have felt like to stand there and watch her son being put to death in the cruelest form of punishment man had devised and dying as a common criminal. Do you remember the journey that Mary has had? The angelic visitation, how it tells us through Mary's life, she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. He's to be the salvation of Israel. He's the hope of the future. He's the Messiah. And she'd seen and heard all these things. And yet in that moment, she stands there watching him die. What a tragic moment for her. Can you feel her pain? Can you enter into her suffering for a minute? Can you see the world through her eyes? She's there at the foot of the cross. 
The Bible says that the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. She watches not only while he has suffered and he's whipped and spit upon and hanging on the cross, they take his clothes off of him and begin to gamble for his clothes. I don't know how you are, but I would have wanted to end that scene in any way possible. Anybody hearing me this morning? I want you to feel her pain. I want you to feel what she felt while she stood there. The tunic was without seam, woven from top, from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. I, I can't read that without it melting my heart. Where else would she be? She's not going to be at home. She's not there darning socks. She's not on a trip somewhere. She's not at a meeting. But mom is going to be where her kids are suffering. She's going to be standing there at the foot of the cross because that's her son that's dying there. Is anybody hearing me this morning? And she was there with her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, which is a whole nother story. So I have to ask, where are the disciples? His mother's there. Where are the disciples? Where did they go? What, what are they doing in this moment of tragedy? Well, the Bible tells us earlier in, or in Mark's gospel, the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with the Pharisees and the soldiers. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, and lead him away under guard. So I want you to see a mother's love is at the foot of the cross. The betrayer's kiss of friendship is being used to betray him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone, who's the everyone? Who was with him? Eleven of his disciples were there with him, and they all forsook him and fled. They're gone. In the moment of his greatest hour and his greatest trial, the men who had walked with him for three and a half years don't have the gumption to be there when he's crucified. They don't have the courage to stand with their friend. They don't have the guts to be counted. But mom did. Come on, I said mom did. That's a mom's heart. That's what a mother's heart is. Peter does make it there in time to deny him. <laughs> and John will also show up standing there as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think this was Mary's greatest moment. We can talk about her great moment when God revealed himself to her 
and that the child that she was carrying was going to be the son of God. And she says, be it unto me according to your word and her submission. And we hold that up as the greatest moment. But in reality, at that moment, she doesn't have a choice, right? When you're pregnant, it's too late to decide. By the way, as a sidebar, I believe in the right to choose before you get pregnant. Let's talk about that right to choose. Because after you choose and you're carrying the child, she doesn't have a choice here. It's not like she said, all right, let's let this thing happen. Not at all. She's, she's understanding what it's all about. But in this moment, an angel didn't drag her there. God didn't speak to her. No one summoned her. The soldiers and the Pharisees didn't drag her there and say, watch him die. She's there. Because she loves her son. She's not going to be anywhere else. Standing there loving. How powerful is a mother's love? And this isn't Mother's Day, but is it all right if I talk about a mother's love not on Mother's Day? Is that all right with you? I know all mothers aren't loving, and I know that all mothers don't measure up. But what we see here, and by the way, your mother may have caused you pain and grief, and I get that. I've walked where you walk, and we could talk about that. But let's look at what the Bible says about what a mother's love should be. And in this era of, of, of gender um, blurring and everybody's just the same, I will tell you that children respond to moms and dads differently and they bring a different nurturing to the relationship. As proof of that, Tim Paul does not tell mothers to not provoke their children to wrath. <laughs> but he does tell dads that. Come on, help me this morning. Walk with me. Pretend like this is making sense. Do you remember Solomon facing a terrible decision? There were two moms, two babies. One baby dies, and both moms claim the living baby is theirs. And Solomon takes an incredible risk trying to figure out how to solve this dilemma. Who is the real mother? So in what would be a ridiculously simple-minded approach, he says... What I'm going to do is cut this baby in half, and each of you can have a half. How many know that that is a stupid decision? What are you going to do? Preserve it? What are you going to do with half? And draws the sword as though he's about to cut the baby in half, and one woman says, don't do that. Give it to her. Because a mother's love will risk it all to save their child. And the mother was identified. What's the example of a mother's love? Solomon used that to save a child's life. Paul describes his own ministry this way. We were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. What is the greatest mark that Paul could think of and the depth and care and love of their ministry but a mother caring for a child? And God highlights it this way through Isaiah. 
God said, as a mother comforts his child, I, her child, I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And though she may forget, I will not forget you. He's saying that the greatest love possible in the human arena that Paul, that God, that Solomon would identify is the love of a mother for a child. You see, what you see in this picture is that love is a compelling force. Love is a moving force. What Mary is demonstrating to us is it's easy to say that you love someone, but if you really love someone, it will move you. When Jesus saw the multitude, saw them as sheep without a shepherd, it does not say that he had compassion. It says he was moved with compassion. When you really love, it requires something of you. And you don't have to plot A, B, C, or D. What should I do? What you do is the natural thing that love does. It moves you into the realm of other people's suffering. It moves you to a place where you can care for them in their pain. You don't reject hurting people when you love them. You care for them. Is anybody hearing me this morning? That's what a mother models for us. We were having a conversation the other day and it dawned on me. I hadn't actually done, I mean, I knew this. I grew up with, in, in my home. <laughs> I was born at an early age and I grew up there. <laughs> but we were talking about parents. and I, It just hadn't hit me like this. But my mother was 19 when I was born. And by the time she was 25, she had five kids. So by the time my mother was 25, she was on her second marriage and caring for five toddlers. I have much more respect for my mother than I did when I was at home. I never understood the times that she would say, nobody called me mom today. Call me Susie or Sally. Nobody called me mom. 19 years old. Do you know today, 19-year-olds, well, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> and we can talk about the impact that had on her in later years and all that happened in her life. But let me just tell you one thing that I never doubted. Sometimes, listen, sometimes I doubted her sanity, but I never doubted her love for me. Never, never, ever doubted that. There's a picture that I thought was really cute that today is terrifying to me. My mother is sitting in an overstuffed chair with all five of us on her lap, and my mother was 5'1". You can see her head coming out of this mass of children. But she loved us. And cared for us. Did she make mistakes? Oh, how much time do you have? But the reality is, a mother's love shows us that there is a moving force to love. Do not tell me that, don't tell me that you love hurting people if you don't go where they are. Come on. Don't tell me you love the church when you shove away people that are suffering. Because on the cross, 
The son of God is dying, but he's also the son of man, and he's the son of Mary, and Mary is standing there. I'm sure brokenhearted with tears running down her face because there was nowhere else on the planet that she could be than where her son was while he's dying. A mother's love took her to the cross. A mother's love will stand at the door of death and not waver. We need to manifest that kind of love to a dying world. And we need to manifest that kind of love to the family of God. Second, I want you to think then, as Jesus hung there, and his mother is standing by the foot of the cross, I want you to think about not only a mother's love, but think for a moment about a son's commitment. <laughs> about a son's commitment. What is a son's responsibility in the New Testament? And I tried to dig this out and find out because Jesus in that moment says, woman, behold your uh, son, what was expected? Well, do you know that Jesus addressed this in the, in the New Testament in Mark chapter 7? Here's what he said to the Pharisees. Watch this. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. What is he saying to them? He's saying that you make excuses so you don't have to do what you tell others God requires. Do you know what we call that today? We call that hypocrisy. Right? We call that hypocrisy. You make up rules to excuse you from the obligations that you have. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin. In other words, it's devoted to God. So it's. So what he's saying is, here's what would happen. Mom, I know that you don't have groceries for this week. Um, and I would help you. But I'm going to give it to the church. As if that would alleviate responsibility then you are no longer let him do anything for his father and mother thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that you it's clear that that you excuse honoring your parents or honoring your family and excuse it by honoring God what is he saying he's saying you cannot dishonor your family and honor God doesn't work that way if you dishonor your family, you're dishonoring God. There's a responsibility there. And how could Jesus ignore his relationship to his mom even while hanging on the cross when he has said those kinds of things in the hearing of the Pharisees? So what was his legal responsibility? Well, what I discovered was that honoring parents was considered a virtue in the Roman world Parents took care of their children, and then children were expected to return the favor when parents grew old. But Rome didn't create any legal obligation. It simply was a value that was expected but couldn't be compelled by the courts. But unlike the Romans, the Jews made it religiously enforceable. 
The obligation to honor your parents appears in the Mishnah in the marriage laws. So when they're talking about marriage laws, it's saying when you marry someone, you marry their family, and there's a time that comes you're going to have to care for their parents. And when a woman married into a family, her first obligation then through the son that she married was to care for his parents first. When is it that men and women are obligated, or what is it they're obligated to do? The rabbi says that reverence involves not sitting in your parents' place, not contradicting a parent, not arguing a parent down. It's defined as offering food and drink and helping them in their senior years, and there were requirements for that. Now, watch this. Jesus was the oldest son. He certainly had brothers and sisters. Scripture is pretty clear about that. We don't know how she is going to be cared for after Jesus dies. We don't know if any of the other family would stand up. And it's most likely that Joseph, at least by this point, has died. He's gone from the scene or he would have cared for Mary. So what happens is, in the Mishnah, in the Jewish law, and in the culture of the day, when Jesus was dying, his mother was still his responsibility. In his pain, Jesus fulfilled his family responsibilities. And when he says woman, you can't read that from an English perspective of insult. If I'd ever called my mother woman, there'd have been no conversation coming out of my mouth until the swelling went down. That wouldn't happen. But the term woman here was a title of respect and honor. Ma'am, he's speaking to her in a way that honors her. Now, I'm just going to say to you, (laughs) I'm just going to give you what I felt like God put on my heart while I was reading this story. If you're going to ask me, I think Jesus could have been understandably and justifiably excused from those responsibilities. He's, I mean, come on, people. He's dying on the cross. Do you know how much pain there was? What all was involved in that? With the nails in your hands and feet, basically rigor mortis sets in while you're alive and you're trying to breathe and can't because your rib cage has collapsed from the angle that you're hanging. And I could go into other details, but you have to try to pull yourself up on those nails just to get a breath. So it had been excruciatingly painful for him to speak, let alone breathe. Who of us would look at that and say, what are you going to do to take care of your mom, Jesus? We'd look at the rest of the family and say, who's going to step up? Who's going to care? Because we could excuse him. But I want you to see what Jesus models for us in this moment. Jesus does not excuse his responsibilities because of his pain. I know this is heavy stuff, but it's beat me up all week long. It's your turn. (laughs) I would have said... You don't have to take care of her. You don't have to worry about this at all. You don't have to, you're dying for the sins of the world. Excruciating pain, mocked. I mean, they've done everything to humiliate you. But Jesus doesn't say that he is free from his human responsibilities because he's on a divine mission. Your pain 
does not erase your responsibilities. You want to see the cross? You want to see Jesus? You want to hear what he has to say? He didn't have to say that. That didn't have to happen. In fact, we would never even have the conversation if that didn't happen. But in that moment, he doesn't assume anything. He speaks out and takes care of his earthly responsibilities because your pain doesn't free you from your responsibilities. I'm just talking to us this morning. Have any of you ever wanted to not adult? <laughs> well, that hand went up high. <laughs> How many of you ever wanted to have a day when you were no longer a parent? If you are one, I mean, if you're not, that doesn't apply. But like, could someone just take my kids for a day? You know, I don't want to be a parent today. Oh, many, many times. Many, many roads. Many, many responsibilities. I don't know what it's like to die on the cross, but I do know what it's like to bury a son. And I don't think anybody would have required that Carol and I did the things that we did during that time. And I'm not saying anyone else should handle it the way we handle it. That's not what I'm saying. But there was a sense that was heavy on me that even in our pain, I still had responsibilities to deal with people and to fulfill my call and to walk in that and, and, and honor what God had asked of me. And sometimes that was really hard. Really hard. I've never forget, I've told this story so many times but it was a crucial learning moment for me and I don't want it to be lost but our son died in June and we took some time off and got away for a while and God did some amazing things during that time we got back we're pastoring and um, we're doing a concert in the park Banshell Park in Ames and I'm directing the choir and we're singing Brooklyn Tab music, and it's intense, and, and uh, we're going to have a great outreach. And after it's done, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, there's a family over here that would like, to talk, that I'd like you to talk to. They're going through a real trial, and you lost your son. You'll understand what they're going through. So I went over to talk to them and found out they had a new puppy they had gotten backed over by a car. Do, do you know what I wanted to do? There was nothing in me that was holy or godly at that moment. Are you hearing me? Come on, is there anyone in the house? You're equating the death of a dog with the death of my son? And you're going to appeal to that? Get a life, people. It's a dog. Hang around, somebody will give you one. But I heard God say, I heard him. And there are times when I've been about to do something that I've heard him speak. And he said, I didn't call you to judge their pain by your pain. I've called you to minister to their pain out of your pain. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Suffering does not free you from your responsibilities. 
responsibilities are what you take care of in spite of your suffering because that shows character and it shows faith and it shows godliness. I know this is tough stuff. You may want me to take a couple weeks off after this, but why else would he say that? Your pain does not erase your responsibilities. Commitments have to be honored even in times of extreme trials. But you don't know what I'm going through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It's never okay to make the wrong choice. It's never okay to live in an ungodly lifestyle. Well, if you knew the suffering I was under, you'd know why I went out and got drunk. No, I don't. Because even in your suffering, you have responsibilities. Well, if I hadn't been so upset, I wouldn't have shot him. He's still dead. Well, I wouldn't have behaved like that. Have I ever used that language? Yeah, yeah, you just don't know the stress I'm under. The pain I inflict by wrong decision when I'm under stress still creates the same wound that I may have to live with the rest of my life. Jesus, hanging on the cross, takes care of his mom and says to John, I need you to step up in my place. I need you to step up. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me how much God the Father values the institution of family. When his son, hanging on the cross, didn't leave it undone, but rather took care of his natural responsibilities while he was dying for the sins of the world. Isn't that powerful what makes me look at my responsibilities a little bit differently then last let me say this it's not last thing I'm going to say don't worry don't put your shoes on yet I want you to hear this I felt like God dropped this in my heart our world is filled with excuse makers Now, excuses can be really powerful. And I understand sometimes I wouldn't argue with someone's excuse, but the world is filled with excuse makers. The kingdom is built by commitment keepers. Are you hearing me this morning? And the devil will turn the heat up on you to get you to back away from your commitment and be just like the world is. Last, we look at a friend's response. The Bible says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. In Jesus' hour of need, he needed a friend, someone he could trust, someone he could lean on, someone he could turn to. I'm not going to be able to continue this responsibility. I need someone who's standing there by my side. And I will tell you, there's nothing in all the world that will compare to a good friend who will stand by you when you're in the midst of your sorrow and suffering and pain. Everyone else is gone except John. 
Peter's denied him. Who knows where he is? The others, who knows where they are? But John is standing there. Who is this John? Who is he? Think about who he was. Jesus met John when he was fishing with his brother James on the Sea of Galilee. They'd had a night of fruitless efforts, and Jesus told them to lower their nets into the water once more. They caught more fish than they could keep in their boat, and rather than rejoicing in the bounty, they immediately left their nets and their catch to follow this master. John is there at the transfiguration. John is there at the raising of Jairus' daughter. He's accompanying Jesus on the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane into the deeper area of prayer. During the Last Supper, John is described as having his head resting on Jesus in a posture that in the East indicated a close personal friendship. Why was John there? Because John kept a relationship going with Jesus deeper than any of the other 12. He got right next to the heart of Jesus. A close, intimate, personal friendship closer than the others. And I just shake my head. Are you telling me that the son of God who's hanging on the cross dying for our sins was looking for a friend? Absolutely. And if you've ever been in the dark, cold, uh, midnight hour and had nowhere else to look, you know the value of somebody that you can look to that you know will walk alongside you. The value of a friend of a close relationship. Someone said a friend is someone who comes in when the whole world has gone out. How do we get those kind of friends? Well, I've talked to you about an experiment I did early pastoring. Uh, It was called INAF, I Need a Friend, and I tried to help people be friends, and that doesn't work because it does need to happen organically, but I'll tell you what I do know. If you're never in an area where you can meet people and break bread with them and interact with them, you're never in that environment, you will never have friends. Because they don't sell them at Walmart. They don't just appear in your garden. Oh, I was picking tulips and I found a friend. I'm going to put them in a vase in my kitchen. Thank you, friend. They don't show up at your door and say, can I be your friend? In fact, if they do, shut the door. That's kind of (laughs) weird. Friends are built out of relationships. Well, pastor, how am I going to do that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. That's why we do. Woo, you're getting it. Hallelujah. Connect groups, get involved. Sign up for leaders is when, Pastor Kevin, now. And we're going to begin, I think it's a Sunday after Easter, we begin the next series of groups. You know, I, don't like, I don't like connect groups. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, get in a different one. But if you're never in an environment to discover a friend and build a relationship, you're never going to have one. But I'll tell you what I know. There's going to be a time that you need someone to walk over the bridge of your pain and stand beside you and if you haven't built the bridge they will never come people that come to you in your pain will come on the bridges you've built not on the bridges they've built you've got to build bridges to people you've got to open the door to them you've got to build those relationships
John immediately fulfills Jesus' request. He doesn't protest. He doesn't argue or object. He doesn't say, where, where are your other brothers? Where are they? And, and why would Jesus give her to John? Ask John to take her into his home. Did she not have a home? It's likely she didn't have one. I don't know what all was happening, but here's what I do know. That Jesus was not going to entrust the care of his mother to get through the days that were ahead to brothers who didn't believe in him. As of yet, none of his brothers believed in him. They will, but imagine if one of them took her into their home and in suffering. See, mom, I told you all the time. He's mentally off. I told you all the time and catch up with him. I don't know why you kept believing in him. You see what a failure is. He knew that she did not need to be in that kind of environment and he bypassed social custom to protect his mother and put her in the care of a friend who believed in him. We need people that believe in us. Come on. We need people that believe in us, friends that care about us. Came across another definition of a friend. Jesus was more than just a friend. He was also the Lord, the Savior, the Master. But at one point in dealing with the disciples, he said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. For a servant doesn't know what his master does. And then you're my friends if you do whatever I've commanded you. And John was there. John heard his heartbeat. John walked with them. And that's why John wandered in to the foot of the cross to be there to support not only his savior, but his friend. Behold your mother. And he responds immediately. The Bible tells us there's another value of a friend. Watch, not only is a friend someone who comes in when the whole world has gone out, a friend is someone who gets in your way when you're on the way down. You know what a good friend does? A good friend is willing to risk friendship to stop you from being stupid. Hello? A friend loves at all times. Faithful are the wounds of a friend who will say, you can't do that. You can't go that way. You can't walk that direction. And you're going to knock me down first. I'm not going to let you go that direction and still be your friend. Friends don't accommodate. Friends don't enable. Friends have the best interest of their friend at heart in the actions they take. John 17, I'm sorry, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Why do you need them in adversity? Proverbs 18, 24. One who has unreliable friends will come to ruin, but there's a friend that sits closer than a brother. And we use that for Jesus, but Solomon wasn't talking about Jesus. He was talking about friends that are always there. We say that blood is thicker than water. And I'm going to say to you that sometimes friends are thicker than blood. In Job 2.11, Job's three friends came to him for what purpose? They'd heard all about the troubles that had come upon Job, and they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That was their intent. They were abject failures at it, but that was their intent, their motivation. Solomon recognizes it this way. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. 
If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who fails and has no one to help them up. Pastor Nathan, if you'd come. What is Jesus telling us? I'm going to tell you something I don't understand. I'm going to go out on a limb here and take a risk. I'm thinking about whether I should say this or not. But I don't know how you call yourself a Christian and cut parents out of your life. You may need to set boundaries. And you may not give them access to every part of you. But God values family. And we're to honor father and mother, just not, the, not just the good ones. Are you, are you hearing me? Someone needs to hear that right now. You need to not. You are the voice of God into their lives. How can you call yourself a, a dedicated Christ follower And you haven't spoken to your parents in years. You need to repent of that. Because God values family. I'm not saying you give them open access. I'm not saying don't set boundaries. Some parents need to not have access to every part of your life. But they need to know that you're still honoring them and loving them. Even while you set boundaries and shut doors. Come on. Because God values family. He values it so much that Jesus manifested for us that your pain does not release you from your responsibilities. You have to be responsible in spite of your pain. And that the only way we're going to make it through is if we have a good friend. Someone that we've built a bridge to that will come to us in our time of adversity. (laughs) Oh, listen. I, I've, I, young lady was talking to me down here in the altar area and how mean her mom was and all the things going around that. And I felt like God gave me a word for her that I've used numerous times since. You don't have to let someone else's brokenness break you. You don't have to be ungodly because they are. You can stand godly in spite of their ungodliness. Hello? And do the right things. If Jesus saw it that important to care for his mother while he's dying on the cross, how important is the family unit, the family structure that we care for one another while we're alive and not let anything create a permanent rend? And not just in families, but in friends. The human pathos of that moment, the human pageant is being played out in front of us in human relationships. And the human Jesus saw the suffering and the hurt and brokenness and out of his own suffering. He reached out to care for his mother and asked for help from a friend. What a powerful picture. I've got some work to do. I've got some work to do. What is dying on the cross all about? 
It's being everything God's asked you to be. I just wonder this morning if I could ask you I don't know I don't have any any situation in mind at all I really don't um, but I just wonder if there's not somebody that needs to make a decision to model after Jesus on the cross maybe you have some responsibilities that you've excused yourself because of your pain I understand pain maybe you have family relationships that you've allowed to be destroyed maybe you've damaged some friendships but Jesus on the cross strengthened relationships while he leaned on a friend with heads bowed and eyes closed no one looking around if he's put his finger somewhere on human relationships in your life with no one looking around, that you need to make some changes, some repairs, some steps, some things you need to pick up, would you just slip your hand up and honor the, honor the Lord with that this morning? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hold them up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Jesus, you see the honesty of our hearts. You see our hands lifted. Thank you for providing this example for us and heal our hearts and our brokenness and our pain so that we can step out and fulfill what your calling on our lives is. Mend our families, mend our relationships, mend our homes, mend our interactions so that we can honor you. Could we stand together and take a moment and just let the Spirit of God cement into our hearts what he's spoken to us individually about this morning. Just take some time to worship him and let him talk to you.
assure you of this morning Jesus hung on the cross to tell you that he cares about you he hung on the cross to tell you that he cares about your family and he hung on the cross to tell you he cares about your friends and if we're going to be healthy we've got to address all of those and what a time during the time that we celebrate the resurrection wouldn't it be wonderful if there were some dead relationships that got raised from the dead some brokenness that was healed some lives that were rebuilt some friendships that were made because we decided to walk in the power of the provision of the cross amen if you love Jesus let me hear your hands this morning what a great God we serve what a great God we serve Again, I want to make sure I say this every week because I mean it. Thank you so much for your faithful giving. Thank you for honoring God with your resources. I believe that God blesses givers. And some of you are experiencing, know the joy of that. So thank you for your faithful financial support. And don't forget, as we approach Easter, to bring your lost apple. I don't want us to forget that. We're looking for lost apples to bring on Easter Sunday. Amen. God bless you. Shake someone's hand. Encourage them today.